So before we get started uh, into our time in God's word, I want to say a few things as a way of setting us up for that. So let me begin with this. I'm going to say and share some things this evening that I think may be hard and perhaps even uncomfortable for many of us in this room. And I get that. And so with that in mind, I'd like to ask you to remember to, to know three things. And here's the first one. I want you to know that everything I say, I say with love. Because I believe this is God's best for us, and I want this for us, for you and for me. And so remember that everything I say, I say with love. Secondly, remember that everything I say, I say with humility. Because if there's anything I'm completely aware of, it's that I am the most broken person I know. And so I preach this message to myself even before I preach it to you. And then thirdly, I want you to remember that the scriptures say that we owe each other a debt of love. And the way we express that debt in in this context is that we would listen to each other. And so I'm going to ask you to listen to me even when it's hard, even when it feels uncomfortable. And you don't have to agree with me. I'm okay if you don't. I would love to engage with you outside of this time. And what I would promise you is that I will listen to you. And so I would just ask you to join with me in praying that we would have open hearts and open ears to hear what God has for us this evening. Because I believe God has something to say to us. And that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. And so let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, we come before you and we declare that we desperately need you, even more than we're aware of. And so I ask that you would open our eyes so that we would see, open our ears so that we would hear, and then help us to obey. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is a question that I ask all of my friends who are people of color. I ask them, tell me about the very first time that you experienced racism. And invariably, they will, with great sadness, often with tears welling up in their eyes, tell me about an event that took place maybe when they were four or five years old that profoundly affected them. And so this evening, I want to share with you my story of the first time I experienced racism. I was six years old and in the first grade. My parents are Indian immigrants. They came here in the early 1970s and they came to New York City first. And a few years later, they moved to the suburbs of New Jersey. And that's where I grew up, in this tiny little town that was predominantly white. In fact, when we first moved there, there were less than a handful of families that were people of color. And when I entered the when I entered public school for the first grade, I was placed into the lowest reading group. Now, I don't know how schools work today. I hope they don't work like this anymore. But we had three reading groups in the first grade. There was reading group one, and these were your rock star readers. Then there was reading group two. These were your average readers. And then you probably guessed it. There was reading group three, and these were your worst readers. And I was one of them. And so one early morning, my mom came in for a parent-teacher conference. My mom was a nurse, and she worked nights, and she was still dressed in her blue scrubs and her white nurse's shoes, and she picked me up from home, and she brought me with her, and we walked into my classroom. 
And we sat in these two chairs across from my teacher, who was white, as she sat behind her desk. And they began talking, and my mom asked my teacher, tell me why my daughter is in the lowest reading group. I know she can read. I know she doesn't belong there. And my teacher responded and said, Mrs. Matthew, your kind of people can't read well. We're doing your daughter a favor by helping her to learn to read. And I remember hearing those words, what my teacher said about us, about me. And I looked over at my mom and she just had this look of helplessness in her eyes. See, all of this was brand new to her as it is for many immigrants. She didn't know the next thing to do or to say. My mom is a kind, quiet, godly woman. But there's one thing you need to know about my mom. You mess with her kids, and she will cut you. <laughs> Something happens deep inside of her when she feels a need to protect us. And so my mom looked straight into my teacher's eyes, and she said, I don't care what needs to happen here, but my daughter will not remain in the lowest reading group. She grabbed my hand, and she squeezed it tight, and we walked out hand in hand back to our car. And she put me in the back seat and she got into the driver's seat and she turned around and she said these words, people are always going to think that you're different because of the color of your skin. You just need to work hard. Well, that experience marked me. It deeply wounded me in ways that I have only begun to understand more recently. It was the very first time that I realized that someone disliked me or thought less of me because of the color of my skin or because I was the daughter of immigrants. And by the way, my mom never gave up on me. She kept fighting for me. And they had me tested and it turned out I could read. And I was placed in reading group one. But for much of my life, I think I've tried to prove to myself and to everyone else that I belong there, that I belonged in reading group one. Now, my mom thought if I just worked hard, I could overcome racism. But that wasn't the case. It certainly wasn't the case for me. All that year, in the first grade, I worked hard so that my teacher would like me, but she just never did. And throughout my life, I have experienced a great deal of racism and discrimination. I've been spit at. I've had rocks thrown at me, all while racial slurs and epithets that are so vile I could not repeat them in this room were screamed at me. I've had people tell me to go back to my own country, which is ironic to me because I was born in the United States, so I'm not really sure where I should go back to. I've seen my family and my friends experience discrimination, all kinds of discrimination. I have watched my parents, who are the hardest working, most dedicated people I know, experience discrimination again and again in the workplace because of the color of their skin or because they speak with an accent. And I'm not the only one. As I asked my friends this question about their first experience with racism, they would continue to tell me stories of discrimination. See, this is the experience of people of color. And all of it led me to have a great deal of anger and distrust towards white people. I had created one story for white people. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, 
a Nigerian novelist, in a TED talk entitled The Danger of a Single Story, says this. The single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Based on a number of isolated incidents, I believe that all white people were racist and could never be trusted. Now, I probably never verbalized, I probably never said that out loud, but because I believed this story, I lived under the power of this story. And so while I had relationships with white people, I went to school with them, worked with them, even had some superficial friendships with them, I never had deep, intimate relationships with them. I believed that racial reconciliation was a myth. It could never happen. And I don't think I'm the only one. You've seen what's happened over the past few years. You watched the deaths of people of color while in police custody. And I don't care where you fall politically. All I'm saying is we have to admit that something has gone terribly wrong. You've watched the protests, the riots, the marches. You watched as weeks ago. Madness descended on Charlottesville, Virginia, as enraged white supremacists spewed violence and hatred that resulted in the injuries of many and the death of one young woman. And perhaps you watch TV, you scroll through your social media feeds, and like me, you begin to believe that it's hopeless. On a warm, August day in 1963, while standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Martin Luther King gave a speech where he spoke of a dream that he had. He said this, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And perhaps like me, you see what's going on in the world and you begin to wonder if Dr. King's dream is dead. Can racial reconciliation ever really take place? Can people of color and white people live together in nudity? Well, this evening, I don't want to look at what Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC have to say about this. I want to look at what God has to say about this. And as we look at this question, I believe the answer we will find is that the gospel unites us. The dream is not dead, and here's why. Racial reconciliation is not a political issue. Racial reconciliation is not a social issue. Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. At the very heart of the gospel is this idea of reconciliation. And racial reconciliation is a means by which the power of the gospel is made evident in our lives. And so this evening, here's all I want to do. All this week, you have been in Acts 2. But in Acts 2, we actually only find ourselves in the middle of the story. And so I want to take us to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1. And then we'll make our way to Acts 2. And finally, we'll look at the ending of the story in Revelation 7. I want to give you a biblical framework for why racial reconciliation matters to God, why it's the very core of the gospel. And then once we do that, I'll simply conclude by offering you some practical applications on how you can make this a reality in your lives. 
So we got a lot of work to do. Let's go. Genesis 1, 26 to, 20, uh, to 27. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God made man and woman in his image, in his likeness. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. The biblical creation account stands in stark contrast to the ancient world where only the king was thought to be made in the image of God. The biblical account says that every single human being has been created according to the divine image and thus has been invested, has, has been invested with immense dignity and matchless worth. Our theology of racial reconciliation must begin with this understanding. How we treat people matters because people have been created in the image of God and how we treat people reflects what we believe about God. And this means as missionary disciples, we must defend human life in all cases and that we must stand up for the rights of those who have been oppressed, discriminated against, and treated wrongly. Now we all know what happens just a few chapters later in Genesis 3. The human race in the world fell into sin. Sin marred and defaced the image of God in humanity. Sin fractured our relationship with God. But God does not leave us there. God sends his son to redeem and to rescue the world and to create a new humanity. And through redemption in Christ, God is progressively restoring his image in each one of us until one day we will be made perfect. The gospel is the good news of God's gracious acceptance of us. Jesus lived a life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve to die. Jesus paid the penalty that you and I owed for the rebellious life that we chose to live. Through Jesus Christ, we have been brought back into relationship with the Father. But the gospel offers us much more than this individual reconciliation. Sin fractured our relationship with God, but it also fractured our relationship with each other. And in his letters, the Apostle Paul declares that our reconciliation with God actually brings us reconciliation with each other. And this overcomes ethnic barriers. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. And he says this, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." God's purpose in Jesus Christ was to create one new humanity, a diverse, multi-ethnic community. Paul is talking about racial reconciliation. And racial reconciliation is far more than just diversity. Diversity is good, but racial reconciliation goes further and says, we recognize and appreciate that we each have unique gifts, 
We acknowledge and get rid of any sense of superiority that we have. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we enter into deep, intimate relationships with each other. Let me say that again. Racial reconciliation says we recognize and appreciate that we each have unique gifts. We acknowledge and get rid of any sense of superiority we may have. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we enter into deep and intimate relationships with each other. The gospel unites us. And this is what we see take place in Acts 2. So turn with me to Acts 2, 1 to 12. Acts 2, 1 to 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? The church, born on the day of Pentecost by the power of the Spirit, is a multicultural and diverse church. We see the power and presence of God symbolized by the blowing of the wind and the tongues of fire. Heaven and God's presence come powerfully to earth to indwell God's people as the Holy Spirit fills the disciples and empowers them to speak in other languages. And Luke purposefully, intentionally gives us 15 distinct communities of God-fearing Jews that he says are from every nation under heaven who heard the gospel in their very own language. On this day, the birth of the church, we see a community comprised of Asians, Africans, and Europeans. The gospel unites us. What we see in Acts 2 is a picture of what the church is to be, a vision of God's kingdom come to earth. Now we live today in the days between Acts 2 and Revelation 7. Tim Keller says, your present behavior is based on what you believe about your ultimate future. So how we live today should reflect what we believe about our ultimate future. Well, what's our future? Well, turn with me to Revelation 7, 9 to 12. This is going to be the last passage we look at. Revelation 7, 9 to 12. And let's take a look at our future. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is worship. And in verse 9, John sees this multitude that he says no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The word nation has to do with our common customs and culture. The word tribe has to do with familial belonging. The word people refers to a geographic grouping of people, and the word language refers to the native tongue of a people. The Bible actually never talks about race. Did you know that? The Bible never mentions race. When the Bible talks about our differences, it talks about our various cultures, family stories, languages, and the different places we grew up. The gospel of Jesus Christ also never says that once we become part of the family of God, that our differences vanish. Yes, we are equal, we are all created in the image of God, but we are different, and that's a beautiful thing. This is where people wrongly get the idea that we should be colorblind. But these verses tell us just the opposite. It tells us that we actually bring our differences, our ethnicities into eternity with us. Glenn Packiam, author and pastor, says this. The gospel takes our differences and gives us a truer identity, a deeper sense of belonging that somehow fits together people who otherwise would not be together. The gospel somehow fits together people who otherwise would not be together. The gospel unites us. It's not only for our joy, but it's for the glory of God. John sees this vision of heaven, and what he sees is this beautiful picture of this multi-ethnic gathering around the throne of God in worship. This is our future, this day is sure, this day is coming. So, if this is our future, if we've seen from the very beginning of time that racial reconciliation matters to God, that it's in fact the very heart of the gospel, then what do we do now as we live in between the days of Acts 2 and Revelation 7? Well, let me offer some practical applications, but before I do that, let me say this. Racial reconciliation is hard and it's often uncomfortable, but just because it's hard doesn't mean we should not pursue it. Christina Cleveland, sociologist and author, writes, the work of reconciliation is often excruciating because it is the work of the cross. If reconciliation work isn't painful, I'd venture to say that it isn't really reconciliation work. Reconciliation requires that we partner with equally imperfect individuals who are also clumsily scaling the cross-cultural learning curve, forgive those who carelessly wrong us, repeatedly ask for forgiveness, engage in awkward and unpredictable situations, and like gluttons for punishment, keep coming back for more. This is the work of reconciliation to which God has called us, and despite its difficulty, it's worth it. So here are some practical steps on how we can make this a reality in our lives. But let me also say this, these ideas are not new with me. 
I've put my own stamp on them, but I have been heavily influenced by reading the work of Christina Cleveland, Brenda Salter McNeil, Sung Chan Ra, Rich Relotus, and so many more. And so I want to just share a few of them with you. Number one, we must continually examine our hearts for conscious and unconscious bias. Now, I told you earlier that I had intense anger and distrust towards white people. So you're probably wondering how I ended up here. <laughs> Excellent question. And the answer to that is the grace of God. Irving Bible Church and the family, the diverse family that I have here is the evidence of the grace of God in my life. For much of my life, even after I came into a genuine relationship with the Lord in college, I simply thought that this is just the way it is. You stick to your own kind, and my kind were people of color. And I thought I was justified in how I felt towards white people because of the racism and discrimination that I had experienced. But what ended up happening is that I became a racist too. I became the very thing that I hated, and this is what the vicious cycle of racism will do if we do not recognize it for what it is, and it is sin. As I grew in my relationship with the Lord, it began to transform me in how I saw other people. You cannot live a gospel-driven life and hate your brother or sister or your neighbor. And as I examined my heart, I recognized that I had a great deal of racial bias and I just couldn't be okay with it. Racial bias and prejudice isn't just a bad attitude, it's sin. And the scriptures clearly call us to put sin to death. We dishonor God and those created in his image when we hold on to our racial bias. Now I know some of you are sitting here thinking, I don't know who you're talking to, but it's not me because I'm not biased but I must lovingly tell you that you're wrong. And if you're thinking that way, it's likely that you're thinking of conscious racial bias. But there is also unconscious racial bias. See, each of us is biased. I am and you are. We all make assumptions about people and we see the world through our own narrow lens. The way we grew up, the stereotypes that we learn from our families and our cultures all affect how we view other people. And so we must learn to constantly examine our hearts and rid ourselves of these biases. And that leads me to application two. We must continually confess and repent of our sin and forgive one another. As we recognize and identify these biases, we must bring this before the Lord and confess and repent of our sin. And we must also forgive those who wrong us and ask for forgiveness when we wrong others. Racial reconciliation is messy. We will say the wrong thing. We will do the wrong thing. But because we're family, we keep coming back for more. And because of Jesus, we seek to be one. As I became aware of my own sin of racial bias, the mercy of the Lord led me to confess and repent of it. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is no middle ground for the sin of racial bias or prejudice. We must completely eradicate it from our hearts. And that's what I had to do. So we continually confess and repent of our sins. We forgive others, but this alone is not enough. Number three. 
We must listen to each other's stories. Here at Women at IBC, we often say that this idea of listening, we often emphasize this idea of listening, and we say that when we listen well, we love well. And we listen to each other's stories, not so that we can fix, advise, or rescue, but so that we can love well. We listen with empathy. Author Daniel Pink says, empathy is about standing in someone else's shoes, feeling with his or her heart, seeing with his or her eyes. We listen to understand and to learn from each other. As we listen to each other's stories, it leads us to application four. We must enter into deep and intimate relationships with people that are different than us. Diversity is not enough. Maybe we sit next to each other on Sunday morning or on Tuesdays, but what about the rest of our days? When I moved to Texas some three years ago, the Lord was working in my life and he was pushing me towards racial reconciliation. I grew up in an Indian church for much of my life and in many ways, it's still where I feel most comfortable. There's a certain comfort that comes with being with people that look like you, with whom you share the same background and experiences. And there's nothing wrong with ethnic churches. And there are times when people of color need ethnic churches and communities. But as I came to understand our ultimate future, I knew the Lord was calling me to enter into meaningful relationships with those different than me. And to be part of a church that recognized that racial reconciliation is the very heart of the gospel. And so I found myself here. And over the past year, I have come to know and to love Jesus more. And a huge part of that is because of the intimate relationships I have with women here who are so very different from me. Many of them are white, we have different backgrounds and experiences, but they have made me better. They have made me better. And I hope in some ways I have made them better too. They they challenge me, they cheer me on, they help me see how God has uniquely wired me and they call me to be the woman that God has created me to be. Proximity shatters our assumptions because I am in meaningful relationships with these women. I can no longer hold on to the assumptions that I make about them. We need each other. So who do you have around your table? Who are you doing life with? There is an incredible beauty to truly knowing someone that is different than you. And we will never understand the fullness of God without deep, intimate relationships with those different from us. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if you do not have close relationships with those different than you, you will never fully understand the depth and the breadth of the gospel. It's impossible. I am so grateful for these sisters of mine who love me, accept me, show me grace and patience with whom I can celebrate our differences and stand united together in Christ. And when I call you or them my sisters, I don't say that lightly. Yes, our ethnicity matters. I am proud to be an Indian American, but that's only part of my identity. Our primary identity is that we are daughters of the living God. 
And the gospel says that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you and I are sisters. We are part of the family of God. And that bond is far deeper, far stronger, far more significant than the color of my skin. And so we must enter into deep and intimate relationships with people that are different than us. Last application, number five, we must stand up for the rights of those who have been marginalized, oppressed, and discriminated against. We must stand up for people of color when they experience discrimination. To understand the current context of what people of color experience, we must educate ourselves on the history of racial oppression and inequality in our country. Read books, listen to podcasts, talk to people, but recognize the racial injustice that has occurred in our history, beginning with the subjugation of Native Americans, slavery of African Americans, and discrimination of people of color throughout the years. It's not enough to write posts on social media. We must speak up. Church, it's time for us to rise up. God invites us to be part of what he's doing. He calls us to be his reconcilers and restorers of his shalom in our world today. And this is the way we do it. On the Sunday after the events that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia, I walked into this church. And to be honest, this was the last place I wanted to be. I came because it's my job. And I came because I knew I needed to worship. Because there's such incredible, overwhelming sadness in my heart. And I just wasn't sure if I belonged here. And I walked into service and I sat down and Brian Eck, our lead pastor, and Barry Jones, our teaching pastor, boldly and clearly prayed and declared that all people are created in the image of God and that the gospel that we believe in leaves no room for racial or ethnic superiority. And in that moment, I wept because my white male pastors had stood up for me and for all people of color. This is who God calls us to be. I believe racial reconciliation is so important, I am willing to give the rest of my days to, pursue, to pursuing it so that the gospel would be made evident in my life. Amen. And I will say that it's not always easy or comfortable to be here, but it's worth it. And here's what I know. I know I belong here. And look right at me, regardless of your race, ethnicity, age, marital status, political affiliation, educational level, or socioeconomic background, you belong here too. We see you, you matter, you belong here. Because of Jesus, we are family. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie goes on to say, the consequence of the single story is this. It robs people of dignity. It makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. Stories matter. Many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. We hear and see this single story on TV, on social media, and I'm not saying we should ignore it, but we must recognize that there's a truer, better story written by God, and you and I get to be the storytellers. And we tell this story by how we live our lives. So what story is your life telling? 
When people look at your life, do they see the power of the gospel at work through your diverse relationships? As Jody said on our very first day of study, if we're not one, the world won't know. But what if we were? What if we were one? What if 400 women who attend Bible study at Irving Bible Church began to tell this truer, better story with our lives? What, what if we recognized our own biases, re- confessed and repented of sin, forgave one another, listened to one another's stories, entered into deep, intimate relationships with one another? What if we stood up for the rights of those who were discriminated against? What would that look like? I'll tell you what it would look like. Transformed women, transformed community. The world would notice and God would be glorified. The dream is not dead. It simply begins with you and me. Our lives must reflect the truth we say we believe because there is a day coming when those from every nation, tribe, people, and language will be gathered around the throne to worship the Lamb. And on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The gospel unites us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. It seems so inadequate to say thank you, but thank you that through Jesus Christ, you have reconciled us not only to yourself, but to each other. Thank you that you have written for us this truer, better story. And Lord, we long for this day where we will be with countless others from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But until that day, may our lives reflect the power of the gospel. And so God, to this end, help us. May it be so. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.